following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Now, over the last few weeks, we have spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 and 2, and we have, we have just been amazed. I mean, I hope for you it's been a worshipful experience like it has been for me to once again be reminded of the authoritative power of God who could speak and bring all things into existence. I mean, we have seen his authoritative power. I mean, there's nobody else in the universe that can speak and things change, right? Uh, you read in the book of Revelation that Jesus comes riding on a white horse and he says one word and every, all of his enemies are defeated. Nobody else does that. It's amazing. We've seen the authoritative power. We've seen his creative genius by making all things out of nothing. We've seen his sovereignty over all things and his design and his purpose. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. I want to take what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. I want to very briefly discuss how Genesis 3 distorted this and see what we got going on in our culture, and then talk to you about how Jesus answered this. Now, someone asked me in the early service, like, okay, why didn't you do this sermon after Genesis 3? And here's why. I want you breathing the air of Genesis 1 and 2 before we, we get into breathing the air of our sin. I wanted you to see the marvelous nature of how God set things up so you can just briefly go, boy, sin really blew this. And then to say, now what's God's answer for this? Because what we're going to find is that Jesus has an answer for all of it. So we're going to find. Now the reason we're doing this is important, right? You, as I said last week, we cannot read Genesis 1 and 2 without somehow throwing this stuff over into our world, right? I mean, you, you know, we read about, um, you know, creation and we go, yeah, but what about this? Or we read about gender or something, we go, yeah, but what about this? And we throw everything we see in our world on top of Genesis 1 and 2. And, and for a moment, we just got to step back and marvel at what God has shown us. Because when you look in your world, don't things seem just backward? I was watching a, a video this week with John Piper and, and John MacArthur. And John MacArthur said something really stunning to me that I think is really true. He said, he said we're no longer living in a post-Christian age. We're actually living in a pagan pre-Christian age. That's very true. When you look at it from that angle, you can see why we have the chaos we have. You have chaos rather than order. You have division and conflict everywhere. You've got, rather than unity and harmony, you've got so much confusion. And it's all because sin and rebellion has distorted everything. It's just, we just don't see clearly what God has done in Genesis 1, and we don't see a pathway back to Genesis 1 and 2 to see what God's plan actually is. That's why we need to look back at this. But there's another reason we need to do this. When you're reading your Bibles, and I know, I know you, I know this church, you're astute, you're astute Bible students. And many times you're reading along in the New Testament, and you read something where Paul, or one of the New Testament writers, says, in creation, it was not so. Or, back at the beginning, it was not so. And the tendency, and listen, I've heard this in the church for years, the tendency has been to see creation post-fall, when the New Testament writers write that. That's not what they're doing. The New Testament writers are writing pre-fall. So what the New Testament writers do is something fascinating. They see something in the culture where sin has completely messed something up. And then they say, back at the beginning, it was not so. What they do is, rather than listening for a cultural, philosophical answer that might make everybody feel good in their churches, they go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and they say, what was God's beginning? How did he set it up? Therefore, that's the way we as Christians are to live it. So when you're looking at your Bibles, you've got to know how to read it. When you read in creation, it is reading Genesis 1 and 2, not reading after Genesis 3. It's very important. Now here's the big idea that we want to look at today, right? The big idea is this. God celebrated his creation 
and rested on the seventh day. Human sin distorted what God created. Friends, and listen, you got to understand, it distorted all of it. All of it is distorted. And Jesus Christ restores God's original design. Let me read that again. God celebrated his creation and rested on the seventh day. Human sin distorted what God created. Jesus Christ restores God's original design. See, here's, here's what we do. We, we are breathing this air of sin's distortion so much, we don't even recognize God's original design. You're going to feel it. I'm going to tell you, you're going to feel it. In the first service, I told him, I said, I'm going through the entire service. I got to this one point and the entire congregation got tense. You could feel it. And the reason is we are so filled with the cultural sinful distortion, we cannot even recognize God's original design. It's challenging. Right? Now here's, here's how I want you to see the sermon today, right? I remember several years ago, I was building a Lego set with one of my kids and, you know, he got like 97,000 steps, you know what I mean? And we were like in step number 1137 and, and as we got there, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking for the pieces that are, and the pieces are not even in the little baggy thing and like what is going, and everything's kind of fitting wonky and I said, this is messed up. And so we begin to go back step by step. And just see, where do we mess up? And we came to the spot where we messed up. And there was that little teeny little black piece that we just happened to miss that made everything off. And it took all the other black pieces out of our little packages. And we could not fit the whole thing together. All we did was go back to see where is this thing blown up, what's the original design, and rebuild. I want you to see this sermon that way. We're going to go back. We're going to see sin goofed some things up. What did God originally plan? And how did God, through Jesus, restore, give us the power to restore it? I know this may be shocking news for some of you. God's plan is to restore all things like the Garden of Eden. You gotta get that in your brain. The Bible begins in a garden, and where does it end? It ends in paradise. And in between, you got this Savior coming to restore all things, including his people, to look like what was going on in Genesis 1 and 2. Wow! Big, that's a big thing, right? So that's the goal, right? That's where we're going to be. And I want to equip you so that you can have answers in your world today. Because I know what's going on in many of you. I've, I've talked to you, some of you. You're angry. You're frustrated. And you're so mad about what you're seeing in your world. And you're confused. And here's what I say to Christians often is, listen, anytime you get angry about discussing your argument, it tells me you don't know your argument very well. So what you need to do is settle down and learn more be equipped more so that you can then have patient, calm, newscasting answers and believing God will use that news to affect hearts. You don't have to affect hearts. That's God's job, right? Your job is just to cast the news and do it well. And I just want to simply give you an equipping sermon to help you see this, right? The other reason I want you to see this is I want you to see that Jesus is the answer for all of life. Right? I grew up in a world where Jesus was segmented into our little spots of time. You know, Jesus was my, my personal devotion time. Then I went off to work and I did my work thing and however I talked and acted didn't really matter because I wasn't in my quiet, quiet time and I wasn't in church. Then when I went to church, I acted a certain way. No, we want to see that Jesus is a solution for all of life. He's a solution for how you handle your marriage, how you handle your singleness, how you educate your children, how you disciple those kids, how you handle your money and your time, and the way your motivations are driving you, that Jesus is the solution and the king for all of that. As Francis Schaeffer said, which is one of my favorite quotes, Christianity is not just involved with salvation, but with the total man in the total world. That's what this sermon is about. It's about giving you a total picture living in a total world. Okay? So let's stand together and let's read Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and then we will pray. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Lord, you know uh, the, the burden of my heart of how important this sermon is to the life of our church and our people and those that may hear this.
And I pray that you would take these foundational truths and not only declare them to us in power, but Lord, affirm them to us in our hearts and our souls so that we can truly be the people who represent you and who demonstrate the gospel well and who declare the gospel well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to jump in by looking at our first point, which is God celebrating by resting. And let me just give you a, a, a forewarning here, okay? Uh, first, I'm not, these, I'm going to give you general principles of the issues that we're going to talk about today. Very general. There's not going to be a lot of nuance. So there may be questions that God works in your mind, but here's what I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that the news of the general principle that God is going to utilize to help you make the adjustments you need to make in your life. Okay. That's one thing. The second thing is just get prepared, right? Stick your mouth up to the fire hydrant, turn it on and breathe deeply. Okay. Because it is going to be a load of content. Okay. Um, I will have a full nother sermon coming out tomorrow in musings that I literally cut out of my sermon yesterday. My wife, my poor wife yesterday, I just, as I was working on a sermon, just cutting things, I just said, I don't know how this is going to work. It's going to come out bad. It's, I don't know. I got to cut this, get this. And she's like, what is wrong with you? I said, I, this is so much information. So I've literally cut out things. I'm also going to add tomorrow places through the last 20 years where I've taught on the principles that we're going to discuss. 20 years I've taught on this stuff. And I'm going to give you sermons that you can read and look at and think through, right? So I won't cover all the nuances, but you'll you'll see as we go just the principles. Let them land on you, and let's go, all right? Okay, now when we read Genesis 2, our tendency is to see them through our own lives. We read that God rested, and we think like ourselves, right? I mean, you know, uh, man, I'm exhausted from a long week, and I, I need to rest, and we kind of think like, you know, the old 80s song, you know, everybody's working for the weekend. And, and that's how God kind of looked at life. And we, you know, I think that was God's Sabbath song. You know, everybody's working for the weekend, right? That is not how we see Genesis chapter 2. Okay? God, it is, God is not exhausted with the work. And suddenly God now goes, oh man, I got to sit on my heavenly throne and probably take a break. Somebody, Michael, bring me some water. Right? That is not how this works. The word rest in Genesis 2 means to cease from working rather than cease from exhaustion. AP Ross described this word this way. It's a great way to describe it. It's the joy, the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. In a literal sense, God celebrated by ceasing his work of creation. Creation was completed after six days, nothing left to do, and God is celebrating what has happened. He is rejoicing in it. It's why God set apart the seventh day as a day of rest. It was a day of celebration. Six days to work, one day to celebrate all that God has done. It's why God gave you this rhythm of life. Six days to work, one day to celebrate. Now, this would have been particularly encouraging to Moses' people who read this. And there's a reason for that. The people knew the creation stories of the false gods that surrounded them, right? They, they knew what these nations talked about. As Kenneth Matthews said, here's what he wrote about these gods. The gods in these creation stories are freed from their labors after the creation of humans who were formed for the sole purpose of serving the deity's needs. God's Sabbath, however, is not a dislike to labor, but the celebrative end of a completed work whereby he expresses his mastery over time by sanctifying it. See, what Moses' people heard when they read the story of creation was God rested and they immediately assumed this means now we got to get to work to serve this God. But then Moses writes in chapter 2, hey, God is inviting you into a day of rest with him to look back at what he's done and celebrate with him. In other words, God wants his people to celebrate what he has done. Now, what's intriguing is at the very most basic level, most foundational level possible, this is where we get the idea of celebrating and worshiping one day a week together. 
So you might wonder, why do we got to go to church on Sundays? Right? I hear it from people all the time. You don't understand, man. I got podcast pastors. They're really good. They're even better than you. I'm Dan. I believe that, right? I got, I got worship songs I can click on in the moment and I'm in it, man. I can worship Jesus. Why do I need to get together with God's people and worship? And my response simply is because God set it aside for His people to celebrate what He has done together. That should be enough. <laughs> God said that, so we go, yeah, that's what it means, right? We are to celebrate as God's people together one day. But listen, we're joining with God in this celebratory work of all that he has done. Kenneth Matthews again helps us when he said this, The seventh day then pointed the Hebrew reader to a day of rejoicing over the created work of God. It is a day on which we are called upon to share what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. In other words, coming together one day out of the week is us saying to God, we are rejoicing that you are our creator and we're rejoicing at what you have done, not what we have done. God set aside a day of celebration for us to say to God, this one day, us taking this one day simply says, God, you own our time and you've created all things and therefore we as your people, we take one day and we worship you together. That's what the Sabbath day is about. That's what this worshipful day is about. God set a day of celebration aside where we cease from work and we marvel at what he has done. Okay? That's point one. You can tell this is going to, and there's more, okay? That leads us to a great place to celebrate the next point. God created, sin distorted, Jesus restored. Now here's why I want us to do this. Because it is important for us to consider what God created, marvel at it, how sin distorted it and go, eh, it's bad. And see what God had planned in Jesus to restore it so we can lift our hearts and our hands and worship and celebrate God's great work. That's why we're doing it. This is an act of celebration. It's an act of taking this one day and worshiping the Lord. So you gotta understand, why are we doing this? Number one, because it's non-negotiable. Friends, it is non-negotiable for you as a Christian to celebrate what God has done. If you are not celebrating what God has done as a Christian, you have really got to check your heart. Now, I, I know some of you, uh, I'll periodically wander around the building during worship time, and I see how some of you will worship, will celebrate. You stand there and you celebrate and you m- kind of mumble the words, and there's something in your heart that's going off. You know, just, it's, you feel it in the room, right? Then there's knuckleheads like me up front clapping on the wrong beat, and sitting on my, I mean, because I can't get it out. I love to celebrate. I love, right? So there's got to be something in the life of the Christian that is celebrating what God has done. But it's also important we do this because sin has distorted what God has created. Now we're going to deal with Genesis 3 next week, but when you look at Genesis 3, up next to the cross, Genesis 3 is the darkest moment in the Bible. Genesis 3 is what brought Jesus, in a sense. Because we sinned is what put Jesus on Golgotha's hill. Now again, that's a man-centered perspective, understanding that, that man's sin brought, we know that God had this plan way before time began, but understand, Genesis 3 is monumental when you read your Bible. It's a change of things. And we've got to see, put up sin's consequences right up next to what God had planned, and then we need to just take time to marvel at what Jesus has done to restore us to be truly human living in a true world. Because what Jesus does, as we're going to see, he restores what Genesis 1 and 2 talks about. So that we can live in a Genesis, like Genesis 1, in a Genesis 3 world. It is mind-blowing that allows you as a Christian to say, I have the power of God at work in me to demonstrate the gospel that has transformed me and to to declare this gospel that has transformed me in such a way that both my talk and my walk match and it looks like Genesis chapter 1. That's why we've got to do this. So there's a lot of things we could pick up on, right? I'm going to pick out three main topics. Order and peace work and service, and gender and marriage. 
Same reaction as the first service. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, we're going to stop. All right, let's start with order and peace. Okay, let's look there first. When God created all things at the beginning, he made them in order. Day one, day and night, day two, heavens and earth, day three, seas and land, day four. And my daughter Hannah and I used to sing the song together, right? And so on. Each morning had a, each day had a morning and an evening except one day, the seventh day. Seventh day never ends. If you know this or not, you're currently right now living in the seventh day. And the seventh day is something that God wants people all over the world to experience. But sin has distorted it. Right? There's order. Day one, evening, morning. Day two, evening, morning. Day three, evening, morning. And so on. But God also created everything to multiply according to its kind. So apple trees produce apples. You know, orange trees produce oranges. Birds and animals do the same. And then God not only just made each according to their kind to make, to reproduce according to their kind, God also separated things. Land from sea, sky from earth, animals from humans, birds to fish, and so on. All of that in Genesis chapter 1 is God's doing so that there would be order. There would be peace in life. Animals doing animal things, humans doing human things, and so on. Now again, don't throw this crazy world over it yet, because we're going to get to that. But animals doing animal things, humans doing human things, and so on. There's a peace and a tranquility in the garden scene because of this order. Because how God set it up. You're going to notice, there's peace with God and man. There's peace with man and man's relationship with the animals and the birds. Each species and each each place has their own place. All of them have their own spheres, their own place of order, their own kind that they operate in, all in order, based upon the order of God, and it brings peace. Kenneth Matthews wrote it like this. The great architect of the universe does not permit the colors of his canvas to run together. Everything seems to work together because that is the way God created it. Then Genesis 3 happens. Adam and Eve take the fruit that God forbade them to eat and they ate it. And the moment they sin against God, all hell breaks loose. There's a breach in man's relationship with God. Human conflicts begin. God actually curses the ground that we walk on and work with. Humans no longer have a peaceful relationship with anything. It is chaos, the opposite of what God created. Humans wage war with one another. What's fascinating is, when you read your Bible, you're going to notice there's not one natural disaster until Genesis 6 which is after mankind has rebelled against God, as if, as if you will. Sure, it's a judgment of God, but it's also an activity where the creation says, hey man, I'm not working for y'all anymore. I'm going to destroy everything you built through a tsunami or a hurricane or a tornado, you name it. You don't see that in Genesis 1 and 2, you see it after the fall. We're fighting thorns and thistles every day of our lives. Friends, listen, you know this, scotch broom and blackberry season is coming. Some of you mark your calendars by it. You've, you've made sure you got plenty of crossbow at your house. I mean, you, you're dialed in for this fight. Why? Because you're battling it every day. The world is anything but orderly and anything but peaceful. Now this is one of the reasons why Jesus came. He came to restore order. He came to restore peace to life and our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. That's why he came, right? Notice in these texts that will come up on the screen, Romans 5 tells us that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. And he breaks down every wall of hostility, meaning nothing can separate us from God anymore. And Romans 8 says something fascinating, that Jesus' work, when he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, was the breaking point of sin's stranglehold on creation. Creation is groaning Moaning every day, waiting to be released from this curse of sin because Jesus has come and is going to one day set it free and turn the whole world into what? The Garden of Eden. 
Jesus came to restore order and peace, first with God, then with one another, and then with creation. See, in Jesus, we no longer have a conflict with God. Listen, if you're a child of God and you believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, you need to understand something. Jesus brought down the cosmic conflict between you and God. It is over. God will never once again come to you and say, Hey, bud, got to remind you of your past a little bit. You and I were in conflict. Let's start that over again. No, that conflict is over. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are restored to a right relationship with God. But also in Jesus, we no longer have to fight with one another. As we will see later in gender and marriage, God made each of us in his image. And in Jesus, he doesn't, he takes the blinders off of our eyes so we can see every human made in the world as an image bearer of God. So we no longer have to be jealous of other people's, you know, gifts or, you know, social media posts about their fancy vacations they're taking or the, the cars that somebody drives or the gifts that they might have. And we don't have to treat other people disrespectfully anymore. And we can actually forgive people at the deepest level that we can be restored to those who've hurt us. And that's all in Christ. We can live once again for the benefit of others and for the joy of our fellow man, just like God made us. And in Jesus, listen, he then takes the the earplugs out and he takes the, the, the glasses and clears them up so we can see and hear the reality of the heavens declaring the glory of God. I mean, we can, we can join with the trees who the Bible says are clapping their hands. I mean, the trees are doing this, right? We, we can beat the rocks to worship Jesus because Jesus said, hey, if the rock, if the people don't cry out, my rocks are going to cry out. And we can say to the rocks, you ain't going to beat me to worship in Jesus. We're going to celebrate before those rocks. We can join with the hills who are saying, behold the glory of God. And we can say, yes, amen. I look at that hill and I go, wow, look at the glory of God. In a very weird way, we become unified with nature. Not in an odd granola way, but in a worshipful way. And then with thanksgiving, this is a crazy thing, we receive all of God's creation as gifts to us, and we can enjoy them. Wow! Jesus restores the order and the peace that God gave us. So, listen, where, where, where is chaos in your life? Where do you see it? Where, where is there a lack of celebration of God's work in your life? Right? Jesus came to make it better for you. He came to restore you to Genesis 1 and 2 where you can have peace and joy and satisfaction in this world that is crazy. Right? Now let's look at the next thing. God's creation of work and service. In Genesis 2.15, God put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, you know what the job God gave him to do is, right? God put him on the earth, in the Garden of Eden, to take dominion of the earth from Eden. So what man was to do was from Eden, he was to go about making the rest of the earth look like, smell like, sing like Eden. He's to go plant new trees. So those trees could celebrate the goodness of God. He was to go to then make new places in a sense that God has created this fertile soil. So he can do all this stuff and then take with him the joy, happiness, peace with God, peace with his wife, all throughout the entire garden. And he was to do what? Spread it all over the earth. They, could, they couldn't get past the garden. He was to subdue anything that came in his way to do that work. He was to work, to honor God, serve his family, love his neighbor. And the creation, the ground, actually worked without him to do this. I mean, can you imagine going out and like sticking your shovel in the ground and it being that perfect soil that just, you know, didn't, just not, you know, not running into a darn boulder like, like this big around and that deep and you're like, man. Or there's no weeds. That's what happens here. God made us to work serve God and one another, and the earth was working right alongside of us. But then Genesis 3 happened. And work and service 
took on a completely different motivation. Work became hard. Creation worked against us. The ground was like saying, nah, sorry, dude. The purpose of our work changed. It became sinfully and selfishly motivated. Instead of being done for the glory of God and the good of others, our work became about our glory, our desires, and what we get out of it. And what you find in Genesis 1 and 2 is that work was given to us for a purpose. It gave us joy. It gave us a a sense of achievement for God and the good of other people. When work was God-centered and for the care of other people, it made work fulfilling and satisfying. But in Genesis 3, work becomes hard. It becomes selfish. It becomes painful. And it makes work feel futile. Right? I've talked to many of you who I hear you on Sunday. Hey, how's your week going to go? Oh, man, I'm just going to go work for the man. I'm going to go stick it to the man. Is that going to work? You know, oh, what are you doing this? I don't know, it's going to be busy, 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 busy. You know, and it's like work is this drudgery. Because why? That's Genesis 3. It's hard work, laborious work, backbreaking work. The point is, Genesis 1 and 2, we are given work. Genesis 3, the curse is not work. The curse is hard work. Now, in the world, because of our sinful nature, there's two extremes. Because of our sin. One is using our work to dominate others and exalt ourselves. And the other is because work is hard, let's let other people do the work for us. We become lazy. There's these two extremes. And what you're going to find in those two extremes is you're going to find people that are battling with, and just do the math on this, depression, stress, and anxiety, because on either side, they're not living the way God had intended for them to live. Because work is now seen either to show how elite I am over everybody else and get what I can and can all I get, Or it's for everybody else to work for me and give me what I should be working for myself and I'm depressed because that's not how I'm supposed to be made. See? So how does Jesus restore work? And you might say, you mean Jesus talks about our work? Yeah, he talks about it a lot. How does he restore our service? Well, the first thing you're going to notice is Jesus came to work for the glory of God and our benefit. Those were his motivations. Philippians 2 says this clear. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus who thought of other people's interests above his own. He came to give him his life as a ransom for many. He came to fulfill everything the Father had given him to do. And when we put our faith in Jesus' work on our behalf, he restores us to God. And listen, he restores us to our original design for work and service. And what he, he restores our representation of him. Remember, before we sinned, we were made in God's image to represent God on the earth in all that we did. To work for His glory and human flourishing. And in Christ, He restores us to be His representatives as well. In other words, we identify ourselves now as children of God more than finding our identity in our work. The the best way to say this to you is, I do not define myself as being your pastor. That's what I do. That's what I do. I define myself first as a child of God, desperately in need of grace, knowing my own sin, my own nature, and just so happens to be I have a job where I get up every week to talk to you about the things God has been beating in my head for the last 50 years of my life. We don't identify ourselves in our work. We identify ourselves as a child of God. And when that happens... He restores the purpose for our work and service. And it becomes, again, to honor God and love our neighbors. See, what does sin do? Sin makes work about us, about our glory, about ourselves, about our desires, about our retirement fund. Our sin makes us desire others to work for us because it's too hard. But Jesus changes all of that. Notice how Paul put this in the New Testament. Colossians 3. Talking to, in the New Testament, slaves, or we use the term employees today. He wrote this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving whom? 
the Lord Christ. So Paul does, he says, hey, you're, you're working out here in the world, but your work is for the Lord Christ. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. Would that not be a problem solver for much in our world today? It's a problem solver in my home. I've told my sons before, hey, bud, go out and get the wood. Man, dad, I don't want to. Great. Dinner's at six. You can stay in your room. Uh, but I'm starving. You're right. Go get the wood. Why? If anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Meaning, if a man decides, or a person involved in the household, helps provide for the members of his household, he has received the faith and is a believer. See? You can see the transformation of work. Not to mention, Jesus said very clearly, the greatest in my kingdom will be what? The servant of all. See, Jesus restores the reason for our work. To honor God, to serve others. He empowers us to work. And when we do, here's what happens. We find joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, because that's how He created us. You will not have a midlife crisis if you serve Christ like this. Now this doesn't change the fact that work in a Genesis 3 world is hard. It doesn't change it at all. This is learning how to live Genesis 1 and 2 in a Genesis 3 world. So that when you're at work in a hard job and you are doing your work, you're a good employee, you're serving others, you're doing this for the benefit of your employer, and you're revealing to all your buddies around you that this is because God is at work in your heart, you are demonstrating and declaring the gospel at Work. See, do you understand this? This is why God gave all of us radically different gifts, radically different abilities. Listen, if you hired me to go work at Jiffy Lube, I'm going to hurt your car. But put me behind a pulpit, and I'm okay with that. Why? We all have different jobs. And your job, by God's providence and sovereignty, is to live in that job, representing your king and loving God and doing this for your fellow man. That's why he put you there. So, where does the motivation for your work and service need to change? Do you see that God in His sovereignty and His providence has put you there? He didn't put other people there. He put you there. When I walk out on the baseball field coming up in February, pitchers and catchers will report the day after the Super Bowl. Praise God for that, right? And when that happens, I walk out not first as a baseball coach. I go out as a child of God looking at this as how am I going to represent Jesus for all these boys I'm going to hang out with all summer? Now let's finish then by looking at gender and marriage. As we saw last week, Genesis 1 and 2, God made male and female as a loving provision. He made male and female in His image. Now you know what this means. Men, God made you in His image. Ladies, God made you in His image. You don't need man or woman, the other gender, to make you image bearers. You already are an image bearer in the gender God gave you. That, that has to be important. We are image bearers in what the gender God has gave us. But God gave us two genders. Why? That are fit together so that we would not be alone. God made us in such a way as to complement one another. But you're going to notice something. In Genesis 3, sin hits and the war begins. The moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were immediately ashamed. Now that nakedness and ashamed is referencing their relationship together in the companionship of marriage, that their intimacy is now broken. Something has changed in their marriage, and it's their, it's the sin that is there. They started blame shifting. God comes to Adam and said, Adam, what have you done? And he goes, well, God, the woman you gave me. And some of you dudes have been doing that the moment you got married. Man, Lord, the woman you gave me. 
Right? Some of you ladies are going, hey, this dude you gave me, Lord. Eve is literally saying, the devil made me do it. It's like a Saturday Night Live skit, right? I mean, the devil made me do it. The battle of the sexes began in Genesis chapter 3, not with Billie Jean King. You need to understand that. This has been going on since the beginning of time. We no longer saw one another as image bearers. Fit for what? Fit for one another. Sin began to make us see the other gender as a prize to be won, a trophy to be displayed, or people to be dominated. The mutual respect and honor for each gender was completely wiped out in Genesis chapter 3. You've got to understand this. And you see this in your world. It's going on right now in your world. Men suppressing women and women rising up in opposition against that suppression. Men trying to dominate women physically and sexually. Women declaring anything men can do, we can do better. You have it on every commercial you watch today. You have feminism in one corner and you have misogyny in the other corner warring with each other. And the whole time, to be honest with you, you have the majority of us who are kind of content in our genders, kind of looking around going, okay, what? Now what is going on here? How do we answer this wackiness? And then to be frank with you, the church refuses to have an answer for this because the church doesn't know how to operate in her roles or her gender and we have no answer for it. And the answer that we do give is compromised. But Jesus restores something to us. He restores our appreciation for our genders. And He gives us the power and and the ability to honor and respect one another in our specific genders. You know, we know this. We know because Jesus modeled this and He lived it as a true man. He had women in His life like Mary and Martha, whom he respected, and they served him in his mission. He called men like Peter, James, and John to accompany him in his mission. Men and women alike, honored and respected by Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection, here's what happens. Our eyes are suddenly opened to the image-bearing of each gender. And we suddenly go, wow, isn't it amazing how God made women? And women go, can you believe how God made dudes? It's crazy. And we don't sit around going, what a, what a crazy woman and what an idiotic man. We're honoring one another. See, in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were representatives of God first as Christians. And we as Christians are identifying ourselves not primarily as man and woman, but as children of God. That's why, brothers, this isn't on the screen, but you're going to find uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 that the Bible says to live with your wife in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, but as one who is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is a child of God as much as you are. We, at the foot of the cross, are perfectly equal on the same ground is where we stand together. We honor one another because we're made in the image of God and we have mutual respect for one another. Now, this is why Paul wrote Galatians 3. Which, I'll use this term a minute ago, Christian feminists have misapplied. Galatians 3 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what my Christian feminist friends have said, see there, right there, there is no authority, no submission, right in that text. That is not what this text is about. This text is about not that life is genderless, and not that there are no ethnicities. Not that there's no role difference. It's this. In Christ, no matter what country you come from, no matter what race you're from, no matter what gender you're from, we are all equal in value in the eyes of God because we are one in Christ Jesus. That's what that text is about. This has nothing to do with order, roles, none of those things. Equal in value in the eyes of God. Which leads me to... Equal in value does not mean the same role. There it is. (gasps) What's about to happen here? Everybody settle down. We're going to look at the Bible. We were created differently for a reason. 
Just like you go to work, right? You go to work and there's different roles at work. All of you are equal humans. But you gotta have some authority structure. It's how God set things up. It's, it's obvious from the Bible and from God's institution of marriage that God gave us different roles with each person having equal value. Several things in the Genesis account we see this. First, you'll notice God made the man first. This is not a coincidence. And ladies, it's not a mistake. This is God's design. You're going to notice God made woman from man. Dudes, don't go checking if you are missing a rib. That's weird. That's not scientifically, medically accurate. God made woman from man with a rib. And for a reason. He made woman out of man for man. And then in that same moment, in a sense, gave man to woman. There is simp- what he's doing is saying, there's no way on God's green earth that men can ever say, I don't need women. And women can never say, I don't need men. Now, what do you hear in your culture today? It's not how God made us. But also notice, God made roles. It's clear from the text, God gave man, made man, the leader and authority. Here's why. God gave man the ability and the responsibility to name every animal, and including naming this wonderful human, his wife. There you go. That naming thing doesn't mean anything. No, it is absolutely enormous. In the Hebrew context, when they would have read this, they would have read authority, leadership. That's what's implied here. Eve did not have the same role or the same authority. She had a different role. Remember, her role is to be the helper, that godlike helper coming alongside the man. And we see these roles played out in the institution of marriage at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Notice, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You know what this means? It means men are to be the initiators and the providers primarily who leave their father and mother and pursue this wife, this woman, and provide a home for her. This is a discussion people ask me often. They say, when do you start thinking about kids, your kids starting to think about marriage? And all And I say, obviously, I said, I tell my sons, here's question number one. Are you prepared and are you ready to go provide for her a home? I'm not. Okay, then the discussion of marriage is off the table now. If you can't do that, at its most basic level, you can't leave me. And by God's grace, when that woman comes and she's gonna, her dad's gonna give her to you, you're leaving me, bro. You're leaving me. I love you, but you're leaving me. Right? The man is the initiator, provider, who, who does, but notice, the woman is the responder and the receiver. But she's not the initiator and the pursuer. Now just let that settle in in our modern day dating tactics. Right? Different roles, but equal in value. But notice something else. The man and the woman, they're to hold fast. Hold fast. They're to become one flesh. Meaning, God's intention for marriage is one man with one woman for one lifetime. And we're going to see this throughout the the book of Genesis, right? We're going to see this violated like mad. God intended marriage to be faithful to one another, loyal to one another, and have a marriage that has, it's monogamous. It's one person you're having sexual intimacy with, and it's your spouse. Now again, don't forget, different roles do not equate value. God gave us different roles but equal in value. We're both created in God's image. Both are children of God. Equal in value, different role. Listen, just like the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We were made in their image. They are equal in value. All worthy of worship, are they not? But they all have a different role. I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit's not going, I don't think it's fair that I didn't get to create. I don't think Jesus is going, wait, stop. 
God, you're not the one that tells me how to do this. Equal in value, different in function. But notice what sin did. It distorted our gender, our, our gender roles. You see this clearly in Eve's curse that God gave her in Genesis 3. Her desire would be contrary to her husband's, and it says he would rule over her. That word rule means he would dominate and dictate. He would crush her. Meaning, you see both of the sinful curses. You see woman no longer being a helper to man, but being contrary to man. And you see man going, I'm not lovingly leading her. I'm going to pound her in the ground. What sin did was take a woman from her joyful, satisfying role of being a respectful helper as her husband's perfect complement and cause her to become frustrated under his leadership and be contrary to him. And what sin did in men was cause men to move from being loving leaders to becoming crushing dictators. So let's take our two extremes. What is feminism doing, brothers and sisters? What's it reacting to? It's reacting to men crush, being crushing dictators. It feeds into this, and that feeds into the sinful curse placed on women. What does, what is misogyny reacting to? It's reacting to women disrespectfully rising up against men, which feeds into God's sinful curse on men. Further, what are the effects of sin on marriage? Well, we're going to see in Genesis, there's polygamy, marrying more than one spouse. Adultery, unfaithfulness, divorce, and the ultimate effects of all of that upon our children and, and adult, young adults today is, why do we even get married at all, man? Let's just, let's just live together and try this thing out. Because marriage is an antiquated institution just trying to hinder our sexual freedoms. See, sin has had enormous effects on gender roles and our marriage. And the reason I say it's so challenging is we are breathing this every day of our lives. And the church, I'm just being honest with you, the church is so compromised this area about leadership and submission and so spoken ill of it and done it wrong that we cannot speak to the world about the craziness going on in the gender culture. We don't have a voice. So what does Jesus do? How does he restore this? Well, Jesus fulfilled the masculine mandate and was the perfectly loving leader. You know what he did? He honored and served women. He cared for them. He pursued and gave himself for his bride, the church. And he was, and he is, he's going to be faithful to the bitter end. And are you glad that your savior will never leave you nor forsake you? That your husband or your spouse may do weird things, but your Savior is always with you. And when we put our faith in Jesus, here's what he does. He restores to us our true masculinity and our true femininity and grants us joy in our different roles. Now friends, this is why in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, when Paul talked about leadership in the church, authoritative teaching in the church, he, he referred to Creation. Should a woman teach or exercise authority over man? They asked Paul. Paul said no. Because God made Adam first, not Eve. And it's why the role of elder or spiritual authority in the church was given to a man, not a woman. He is to be a qualified man who is the husband of one wife. You've got to do some serious gymnastics, word gymnastics, to make that not masculine. There's no way that can be feminine or neutral. It is the husband of one wife, a one-woman kind of man. Very clear in the text. And it's why Paul wrote about women that a wife, in, in marriage, that a wife is to submit herself to her husband and see to it that she respects him, but the husband is to do what? Love his wife as Christ loved the church. What is he doing? He's referring back to Genesis 1 and 2. And it's why Jesus told us that we're to be faithful to our spouses and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It's to be one man, one woman for one lifetime. What Jesus does is absolutely stunning. He restores us to our true masculinity and our true femininity, and He restores the wonder and the joy of our genders and marriage. 
For what reason? So when we're living in a Genesis 3 world, we are demonstrating the joy, satisfaction, fulfillment of being in our gender, in our marriage, content in our roles, and then we're declaring a gospel that says we're so transformed, we don't live like y'all. Now, I cannot tell you how burdened I am about this. Because we have bought into a, a feminized culture. And we think in our minds, these things can't be true. When you walk into a biblical church, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see remarkably strong men. And you're going to see remarkably strong women. And you're going to have those strong men have no problem whatsoever hearing a concern from a strong woman. And you're going to have no problem at all having those women receive instruction from a strong man. That's what you will find. And by God's grace, I'm just being honest with you, I'm grateful we have that here. I've been accused many times of, well, Dave is a dictator. Dave is this, or he's a chauvinist. Can I just, I'll just do one thing. Go interview my wife. Watch me with my daughters. And you ask me. They are strong. My wife gives me her opinion more than you will ever know. (laughs) And I am incredibly grateful for it. I'm a strong leader because she's a strong woman. And church, I'm going to tell you, I'm convinced we cannot speak to the transgender stuff in our world because the church has adopted a wrong view of gender roles. If we want to have a voice into that world, we better get our gender stuff right. So let me say this clearly. Men, your role is to be a loving leader for the good of all women. Dudes, if you walk up on a situation and you see a man mistreating a woman, everything of your masculinity ought to come out. You must be strong, protective, sincere, delicate, caring, compassionate, passionate, and gentle. And ladies, listen, your role is to be respectful of all men, but listen, and be submissive to the right man when appropriate. Not to all men. You know why? Why did God institute marriage? For a father to give his daughter away to a man. When I gave my daughter Hannah away to Grant, he knows this very clearly because on the day we said it, I said, brother, here's what we're doing so you can clear on it. I'm transferring my authority in her life to you, her care to you. And I'm entrusting you to care for her. I no longer am that same authority. And when she said, I do, and I said, her mother and I, and she said, I do, and he said, I do, they will tell you, I stepped out of the authority in their life and begin to be a friend giving wisdom. Because there's to be a transfer. I want her understanding, be submitted to your dad, and then be submitted to your husband. To the right man, not to all men. In addition, ladies, you are to be strong, receptive, sincere, gracious, caring, serving, compassionate, and passionate. But both men and women, listen, are created equal in value as image bearers. Why? Because we're one in Christ. So let me just ask you, where where are you frustrated with how God designed things? What I've loved about our church is that nobody's been frustrated about our gender roles here. Our women love being women. And our men love being men. And our children are watching it. And we're raising up men and women to see what this looks like. What's that going to look like in 40 years? So as you can see, Jesus has a lot to say about being true humans in a true world, right? I mean, God created, sin distorted, but Jesus restores. And here's one way you see. God already knew in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3 was going to happen. And he already had planned to send a Savior to restore it all. Let's pray.
Father, you, you know the need of every individual in the room. And you have flooded the room with a fire hydrant and given us content from your word. I pray you would convince and do the work that only you can do in the life of your people. But Father, the prayer I have is that our people, those who call CLF their home, that we would have answers that Jesus has given. That we would marvel at your work of creation and your work of restoration in Christ. So that in this Genesis 3 world that we live in, we can represent you really well. Transform our marriages, transform our relationships, transform the chaos into order. Help us be better employees and better employers. Help our service to come from hearts that want to honor you and serve our fellow man for the sake of the gospel. And we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.